uh, as the year unfolds. Let's turn to Mark's Gospel. Um, and uh, and as, as we've been thinking about over the course of these few sermons, these few days, uh, the, the Gospels are not simple biographies. It's a kind of genre all its own. It's a style of writing, genre, all its own. Uh, it's a kind of biography which is a long, a death narrative with a long introduction. It's all building up to ordinarily the most significant things in someone's life are the things they do during their, their adult years up to their prime, perhaps in their late middle age. Um, here we have someone who dies young and their death is the most profound thing and what comes after. And so it's, a, it's this long introduction, all looking ahead to then a final week um, and then final night, death. Um, it's an interesting structure to a story. And at this hinge point, we're not just halfway through the book uh, in a literal sense, but also we're structurally halfway through. We reach this hinge point, literary hinge point. As I've mentioned, Scott picked it up in his MCing, that we've been asking, who is Jesus? Who is this one? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this one who forgives sins? Who is he? Who is he? And we've heard some hints at a guess. Oh, he's Elijah come back to life to haunt Herod. He's, um, he's demon-possessed. He's mad. He's, um, the, the demons have even said who he was and have been silenced for saying so by Jesus because he doesn't want to be introduced um, by a demon onto the stage. Um, who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And now we reach this point where Jesus turns, as we have just read, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? 8 verse 29. Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. This is the, um, just as he did miracles and then hushed them up. So now they have declared a miraculous truth. You are the Christ. We already had known that from chapter 1 verse 1. Now Peter and the disciples are realising it. He is the Christ. That's who he is. And immediately, verse 31, he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Who is he, the Christ? What has he come to do? To die. And the second half unpacks that truth, what it means that Jesus is the king who came to die and what it means to follow the Jesus, the King who came to die, which will be our two headings for tonight's sermon. Jesus, the King who came to die, following Jesus, the King who came to die. It's halfway point. First of all, then, the Messiah who must die. This, um, uh, this section that we're looking at tonight begins in a strange way. It begins with a miracle that is odd compared to the other miracles of Jesus in all sorts of ways. Remember, those of you who were here this morning, that there was one woman who could come up to Jesus without him even realising it and touch him and be healed. Yeah? Uh, he can heal with a word from a distance. Um, uh, so, so powerful is Jesus. Um, and yet, here we have a, a miracle that's odd and usual for a bunch of reasons. Um, it's typical at the beginning, 8.22, they went to Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man, begged Jesus to touch him. That's familiar. At the end, pretty familiar, verse 26, Jesus sent him home, saying, don't go into the village, keep it quiet. There's a, a secretness to his ministry, a mystery to his ministry. But in between, there's a strange method. Jesus spits on the man's, uh, uh, spit, puts hands on him, and, and Jesus asks him, do you see anything? <sighs> An unusual result. Uh, he, I see people, verse 24, and they look like trees walking around. That doesn't even quite work. Strange method. Strange half result. Requires a do-over, verse 25. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and the man's eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Why this partial, imperfect, two-step miracle? Well, I think it, I mean, it's, we've already got a clue before this little section begins. At the end of what we looked at this morning, Jesus had spoken to his disciples. Do you still not understand verse 17, 8, 17? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ears but fail to hear? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? And then here is a healing which half gets it, half sees and then requires a further work to fully see. And then what do we get next? Straight after this 
peculiar miracle, we then get the, Jesus saying to the disciples, who am I? And well, well, some people say, he asks, you know, who do people say I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, other one of the prophets. What about you? Who do you say I am? Rightly, Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus begins to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They must be killed and on the third day rise again. He spoke plainly about these things and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh-uh, you got it wrong, Jesus. <laughs> you are the Christ and you're totally wrong. <laughs> it's, it's quite a quick turn. He sees, he sees a little, right? He, he sees, you know, like, like, like people like trees walking around. There's, there's form. You are the Christ, but I still don't get what kind of Christ you are. I'm not fully letting you as the Christ. If you were the Christ, surely I should listen to you when you tell me what kind of Christ you are. Um, so I'm not trusting you fully yet, but also I'm, I can't understand yet what it would mean for you to be a Christ who must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. Perhaps in shock at this point, the idea uh, that uh, the three days, maybe the three days later I'll rise just, just goes over his head, maybe. You know, it's like, what, what, hang on, what, you know? I mean, it's like you imagine the uh, coronation. When's, when, has there, I don't really keep up with the royals. We, all, we haven't had the coronation yet, have we? It's Yonks away, isn't it? May, and it will go for Yonks too, one of this huge long ceremony and stuff. But imagine, right, you're there and you've got some hushed British voices, not like Andy and Adam, but like kind of real British, you know, real kind of posh voices, you know, hushly talking about the whole thing and here he is with the royal elbow and he's lifting up the royal scepter with the royal ding, the bingle and the witchet and then this is important, you know, and here we are now, we're walking into the, some, some chapel or cathedral or something, isn't it, they go into, and, I don't know, and then they're in there, up the front, oh, there's the, the royal guillotine up the front and he's, he's walking up and he's lowering his royal head upon the royal guillotine and then we have, oh there, here's the Archbishop of Canterbury and he's coming up and grabbing hold of the royal guillotine lever and <laughs> it's, it's, look, the, the Republicans would be t perfectly happy <laughs> and, and farewell to the royals, you know, forever after. Um, but that's not what kings do when they go to get crowned. <laughs> get their heads cut off by the royal guillotine. Um, no, it, it, so I'm the king, here's my plan, here's my royal decree, I'm going to die. This is a shocking thing. King, I've come to die. Um, maybe it's just that he didn't hear the three days, or maybe, because for a Jewish person you've got to understand, the rising from the dead, that's kind of judgment day. You read, say, the book of Daniel. At the end of the age, the dead will rise, the judgment will come. So maybe he just heard it to be, yes, I'm the king, and I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be betrayed and killed, and then I'll go to heaven when I die. Maybe that's how they heard it. You know, at the resurrection, um, you know, I'll go to heaven. <laughs> well, uh, uh, no, what? This, I don't get it. I don't see. I don't understand. As you're a Christian, you get that that's the whole story. He dies, he rises, he's the saviour king who saves and rules because he triumphed over sin and death through his sacrificial death for sin and so on. But they're not getting it. Yeah, They're not understanding it. They're not grasping what it means. They see something, but they don't see the whole deal. Jesus keeps sowing this seed in the coming chapters. There's three predictions of his death here in 8.31, again in 9 verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want to go anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. 10 verse 32 to 34. 10.32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished, perhaps at his resolve, his picking up the pace, his fixed um, mission to Jerusalem. And those who followed him were afraid and he took the twelve aside and they told him that was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's again a clue, a structure clue that these chapters hang together, isn't it? 
these repeated promises of his death, this threefold promise, revelation, special revelation of how this Messiah will be a Messiah in his death. Peter's not getting it. He's not understanding. Why would you come as the saviour, the king, the ruler, the, the, the blessing one of God and then like commit suicide? Get your head cut off? This is foolish. He rebukes Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes him. Very strong words. Chapter 8, verse 33. Jesus turned to him and looked at his disciple. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> strong words. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, the things of man. You're thinking from a human point of view. All through the Bible we get that warning, don't we? Don't look uh, amongst, say, King David's brothers. Don't look for the ones who are the strongest and the handsomest. Look for the cute little ruddy shepherd boy that everyone forgot about. Don't see with your eyes. See as God sees. Look with the heart. Yeah? Let's see what is true, what is God's true purpose. Uh, you're just looking from a human point of view. You want a king who's mighty. You haven't understood yet. Yeah. Peter sees, but he doesn't yet see. He doesn't see from God's point of view. He doesn't understand God's purpose. He's seeing in merely a worldly way. If he really did see that Jesus was the Messiah, of course, he would also trust the Messiah. As the word from heaven says in 9 verse 7, on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Yeah. You should listen. If you really think he's the Messiah, pay attention to what he says about his kingly rule. Follow this Messiah in his divinely appointed plan. He called the crowd to him, verse 34, along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, if you really want to be my disciple in my kingdom, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and the gospel, remember the announcement, the kingdom has come in Jesus, will save it. What good is it for man to gain his whole world and yet to forfeit his soul? Or what can man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to die and then rise. And what should you do about it? Follow him. Listen to him. Pay attention. Follow him. Die to yourself. Your interests and your well-being on earth and follow him and his interests and eternal well-being to come. Live a cross-shaped life, you could say. The next two chapters really unpack that, what it means to follow the Messiah who came to die, what it means to live a cross-shaped life. Really, the rest of the New Testament goes on to talk about it. A book like 1 Peter, you could say, is the real theme statement. One year when we did this conference on the topic of the cross, that was the Bible passages, which is working through 1 Peter, the cross-shaped life. So have you realised who Jesus is? Yes, he's the Christ, he's, he's God, come to save us. Have you realised what he came to do? Yes, he died on the cross to forgive our sins. So are you following him? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you know, what do you, if, you, if someone did become a Christian, you've got flatmate, classmate, you just met someone in church, I've only just become a Christian through a YouTube evangelist. <laughs> and now the evangelist said I have to find a church, so I just turned up here. So what do I do now? <laughs> the, uh, my internet got cut off and I couldn't find out. <laughs> um, uh, what, what does it mean to live the Christian life? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Yeah? The cross-shaped life. Well, to die to yourself. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Yeah. It is, die to yourself is a little package statement that captures up three kinds of deaths, I think, all blended in together. There's die to my self in rebellion against God, my sinful self. You could say it's my old self, living for me or for the gods I've made up instead of the true God. Die to that self. Don't be that person anymore. Be a new you. Don't live for yourself. Live for Christ. Die to self. Don't live to your temptations and your fantasies. Live for God and his way. But die to your sinful self. Die to your worldly self. There's a sense in which he's saying, set aside the gaining of the whole world, which isn't necessarily sinful. could just be successful. But be willing to give up the riches of this world. Because if you had all the riches of this world, all you would have is all the riches of this world. 
which Jesus says is nothing compared to having your soul at peace with God. Yeah? So give up your sinful self in rebellion against God. Give up your worldly self, which is focused only on the riches or the ambitions or the success or the comfort, just the simple creature comfort of this world. Die to sinful self, die to worldly self, die to uh, a self that only lives for this life. Instead, have an eye on eternity when the Son of Man comes in the Father's glory with his holy angels. Eternal life rather than simply saving your life in this age. Live for eternal things, not just for worldly things, for the cause of Christ, for his missionary purpose. Be a missionary prayer, a giver, evangelizer. There's great songs that capture this, isn't there? One of the real bangers is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's a lovely one, that one. Yeah, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. It's coming straight out of Mark, isn't it, really? It's, it's just a poetic reflection on this. Yeah? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down where could such love and sorrow meet. Or thorns compose so rich a crown. We see his power, we see his love. We see his coronation in his cross. He's on a thorny, wicked, rugged throne as the saviour king, yeah? And the, 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 I can't remember the other verse, the final one is, sings about how if, even if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would be, if I owned everything, that would still be an offering too small to offer him. For such a love, so amazing, so divine, it demands what? My soul, my life, my all. When I survey the wondrous cross. Wow, that's right, isn't it? All that he's given me, all that he's done for me, all, he's loved me so much. He's given me everything. And so I live for him. Nine verse one has caused a lot of puzzling for Christians. Jesus says, "I tell you, some of those standing here won't taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power, coming straight after a mention of the Son of Man's return with the Father's glory and the holy angels." Makes some people say that, "Oh, did Jesus promise that he was going to come back in in their lifetime, back in the first century?" We'll look at some verses like that tomorrow night in Mark thirteen that seem to suggest a similar thing. I don't think so, however. I think rather he's looking ahead to, from really the very next paragraphs to the rest of the book, that actually um, all this promise will begin to be seen clearly in their lifetime. They'll see him gloriously on the Mount of Transfiguration in just a second. They'll see him gloriously be anointed king on his cross. They'll see him gloriously resurrected in glory with angels as he rises from the dead. Yeah. The kingdom dawns in their lifetime, revealed for an instant on the Mount of Transfiguration, achieving his work and rising as king in his cross and resurrection. That's what I think 9 verse 1 is talking about. Yeah. That thou will see Jesus' glory, first in his transfiguration briefly, and then in his cross and resurrection. So the transfiguration is a blessing from Jesus and from the Father that just after this shocking news that's hard to process, they're blessed with a glimpse, a reassuring glimpse that uh, no matter how bizarre and absurd and appalling and outrageous this revelation of a dying Messiah is, they're reassured by seeing Jesus there together with Moses and Elijah. Remember we looked at Malachi saying, remember Moses' law, Elijah's going to come, and then here is Moses brought from glory, and literal Elijah, just like Malachi promised, uh, standing there. And here are these great prophets. You could see them as the, the prophets of the Old Testament. Moses who brought the law, the great prophet Moses. And then Elijah, the first of the, the, the speaking prophets calling Israel back to the law of Moses, who kicked off then that whole Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all that stuff. Here's these two great prophets in silence, just kind of there wearing the T-shirts maybe. I'm with him with the arrows pointing to Jesus. They're there in silence. And then God says, with the great prophets of the Old Testament, God says, listen to the guy in the middle. <laughs> this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
And Moses is going, yep, listen to him. Elijah's saying, yep, listen to him. I'm going to listen to him. Can't wait to hear what he says. Pointing to Jesus. Actually, to listen to him is a, a little, um, if you clicked on that, it would take you back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. You must listen to him. Here is the prophet like Moses. Listen to him. Yeah, from Deuteronomy 18, from the voice from heaven. Listen to him even when he says, verse 9, as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead and they kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? And I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wished just as it was written about him, referring to John the Baptist, who had that Elijah role and was beheaded by Herod. Listen to him even when he says, you know what, the Elijah to come got killed, the Son of Man, the Christ to come, he's going to get killed. Listen to me, this is, God is at work in this, as strange and mysterious as it was to those first ears. And then as he comes down the mountain, we begin this theme of the next few chapters What kind of character marks those who would follow Jesus, who would take up their cross and follow Jesus? As they come down the mountain, we find a prayerlessness, an unbelief marking the disciples who who have forgotten that their power came from God, not from their status or their role. They've been arguing and squabbling about why they can't exorcise this demon and they complain to Jesus about it. And Jesus' rebuke to them in verse 9, verse 19 is, you are an unbelieving generation. How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And he heals them, uh, heals the boy, and then they, they say, well, why couldn't we? Verse 28. And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Did you think about praying, maybe? That in, in their success, in a way, in their closeness to Jesus, their status, perhaps, They've lost sight of the fact that the power of any miracle is not in the miracle worker, but it's in the God they pray to. So don't be unbelieving, wicked, prayerless if you're going to follow the Messiah who came to die. Yeah. If we're to follow Jesus, we need to be prayerful, we need to be trusting. We need to be like 9 verse 24. That's a cool little verse. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that lovely? Humble, kind of honest. I believe, I still kind of don't believe, so help me. It's a good little prayer right there. That's the kind of humble prayer of those who would live the cross-shaped life. So then, second big heading. Let's go through these next few um, paragraphs into chapter 9 and 10. Uh, The cross-shaped life being Jesus' little ones in a world of great ones. The next story we get at the end of chapter 9 there is pretty embarrassing to read. It's so childish, so incongruous. In this context we've just been looking at, we get here uh, where Jesus is saying uh, to them in verse 33, what were you arguing about on the road? They're kind of a little bit awkwardly quiet because they were arguing about who, was, who rocked the most, who was the most awesome, who was the greatest. <laughs> Jesus sits them down, gets some little snotty kid um, and says, look, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, verse 35, the servant of all. He took a child in his arms, had him stand among them, took him in his arms. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. If you're going to follow a king who's a servant king, a, a humble king, a king who came to die to save and rescue other undeserving people, then don't you fixate on who's the best. Who cares? Welcome others, love others, seek to be a servant like your king. There's a, 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 another song, it's, it's a, I don't know if I've got this one locked into my memory as well, that um, was did the rounds back when I was at uni. It's probably kind of out of, out of circulation now. Have you ever sung the song, this is like the God, the servant king, he calls us now to follow him and live our lives as a daily offering of service to the servant king. 
That's a, it's a, an oldie, but it sounds like it's a goodie. It's, I'm glad it's still got some legs. That, that's, that's what he's saying, right? If the, your God is like that, who's, who's used those hands that flung stars into space, surrendered them to cruel nails, then if I'm going to follow that one, I'm not going to be flexing, am I? But instead going to be serving, looking out to the other, Yeah? This is how radical the cross-shaped virtue ethic is. You might know of the evangelist, Australian evangelist, John Dixon. He even wrote a book, a kind of theology history book, looking at how humility used to be seen as like a, an insult in the ancient world. You know, the Roman or the Greek doesn't um, uh, uh, praise somebody by saying they're humble, insult them by saying they're humble. Like, how, who would be humble? Like, if you're wise, if you're a philosopher king, if you're wise and noble and strong, you know it. And you show it by then drawing others into your patronage, sure. But under that patronage, they all know who's the awesome one, under whose patronage they rest. Who would want to be humble? The only people who... In some ways, the Greeks and the Romans is what Friedrich Nietzsche then picked up, the atheist philosopher in the 19th century, and said, you want to be the superman, the ubermensch, who is a great one, not like the slaves and the herd... They talk about humility because <laughs> that's the best they can hope for is that maybe um, everyone will think that it's good to be as depressing as they are. That, that's how radical it is that Jesus is saying there's a whole different value schema where the great thing isn't to be glorious and powerful and to know it and show it, but to serve and to give and to recognise interdependence and equality um, that's a very different way of looking at the world. It's a transformational way that although Christian history has been a very compromised affair, that has been a thread through Christian history as Christianity has touched cultures. At its best, there has been this thread of equality and service that has been praised. Yeah? Uh, a similar kind of thing goes on in chapter 10, as if they hadn't learned, where um, James and John, sons of Zebedee, in 1035, say, Teacher, we would want you to do whatever we ask. <sighs> what do you want us to do? And they say, Let's one of us sit on your right hand. We've been talking about it, Jesus, and we've figured this out. One of us will sit on your right hand, and one of us, we don't mind which. Well, we can swap sometimes, take to a hot desk, one to the right, one to the left, uh, in your glory. Thanks. Jesus says, you don't understand what you're asking. Remember how I'm the king who came to die? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Be baptised in the baptism of suffering I'm about to be baptised with? Oh, yeah, we think so. <laughs> oh. And then Jesus said, yeah, okay, actually, you will. You spoke better than you knew. How ironic. You are going to suffer for my sake. Yeah. But I'm not going to grant to you right and left hand. That's not what I'm interested in. And then he calls all of them together. They're grumpy at James and John, probably not because of how embarrassing it was, but probably they just got there first. That <laughs> They're grumpy. How come you went and asked about the right? I thought we were going to do that as a group. Um, we're going to get like a right and a left-hand couch. James and John. Um, and Jesus rebukes them all and says, listen, guys, come on, let's think about power differently. Verse 42, 1042. You know, those regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even our God the Son, come to earth, even our King, our Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to buy us out of slavery to sin and death and the judgment of God. Amazing, isn't it? It's a Christian view of the world that sees this as good and right. And it's shamefully sub-Christian when we Christians drift back into status and power and control and coercion. How do you carry yourself in your family, amongst your siblings, in your workplace or your friendship group, in your youth group, in your church? Is it about who's the greatest, who's the best? Maybe even passively, indirectly, in a whole humble brag sort of way. You know, there's, there's ways and means to do this, isn't there? Um, or are, are you genuinely interested in other people and interested most in others who help other people? I've got a friend, like a sort of an online friend, sort of, um, who's, um, who's just done a PhD, all looking at the Christian view of singleness. And... Uh, 
she's really thoughtful, reflecting on, on how, that, how being a single person fits into you know, the Christian life and you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and she's got a book coming out about that. And she was uh, recently um, reflecting on how, um, uh, as she was just trying to invite people to um, uh, kind of contribute to a discussion on this topic, how some people re- would reply and say, um, oh, no, thanks, I can't, I'm too busy. Others would say, yes, sign me up. And then other people just zero reply. Just this no reply thing. Um, and it's just going, that's odd. Like I literally might have talked to somebody very recently at an event like this and talked about this and they expressed interest. And then I emailed them and said, hi, I'm asking you for a favour as a young academic and theologian. Would you help me out? Just nothing, just ghosting. And it got us reflecting a little bit on, on uh, I, look, I know some people just can't get to every email because they're busy or they're disorganised or just have a problematic relationship with email. You know, get all of that. It's, but we were reflecting on our experience how there's a certain, again, not necessarily everybody, not necessarily even all those who didn't reply to her, but there's a certain kind of person for whom not replying <laughs> and not being available becomes a status thing. I'm too busy for you can't even reply to you. You're just going to have to assume that no answer means no. That's the best I can give you. And it can slip into pastors and evangelists. So they've, they've been, I've had dealings uh, with, with some pastors, American pastors, it's often shot through the American Christian culture, sadly, not exclusively, but you see version of it there, where it's almost like the pastor is like a celebrity that can't, can't, but you can't get access to them. They're almost behind bodyguards. And uh, in one case, I went with a group of people to America at the invitation of a pastor, and we saw them once, pretty much. Like, it was really hard to get access to them. Um, and yet, at the same time, you can have another. And, I mean, Scott works with a lot of people from around the world, for example. I've had dealings with other Christian pastors from around the world. Um, where they might be equally as busy, equally as important, equally as impactful for the kingdom. And yet when they're at a conference, they're just sitting down at the trestle table eating the cheese on toast with everyone else. And if some kid wants to come up and chat to them and ask a question, sure, come and sit up and I'll chat with you. And if you went and visited them, they'd come and show you around. And, and it, you see, we can get sucked into variations of importantness and inaccessibility as a mark of status and busyness and all this... Whereas there's a being shaped by a servant heart that, uh, that can bleed its way out into the, just the way we manage, hold ourselves, handle ourselves, what we're interested in. Yeah? Dying to self, status, power, dignity, serving others. Is that the kind of life you're going to live? Is that the kind of partner, life partner, those of you who look for boyfriends, girlfriends, marriage, do you look for the person who... Um, who looks like they'll be wealthy and successful and impressive, who'll look good up the front of the church building at the wedding. You know, as, as a generalisation, the guy thinks the girl likes the good car because she cares about cars. She doesn't care about cars. She just, if you've got a good car, then that means status and wealth. You know? That can be a stereotype, right? A guy can look at a girl and, again, weigh her up to go, will she bring me status and wealth and dignity, whether by her looks or by her family connections? We, do we size people up that way? Yeah, status, wealth, good looks. Is that the peak for us? Or do we also equally treasure another kind of enduring beauty? Yeah, it's the humble, servant-hearted, the kind, the gentle. Yeah? We could go on, couldn't we? Welcome the little ones. Care for the little ones. We saw that in 9 verse 36 and 37, didn't we? There's another story like that. Again, these mirroring stories in 10 verse 13. Let's have a look at that, 10 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and blessed them. Yeah, isn't that great? It's, no, don't, again, it's the accessibility thing. Is it? Don't push him away because he's too important. No, bring him close. I'm here to bless. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon talks about uh, there's the kind of... Like he was in, from the Victorian era, which is all you know, frills and collars and you know, that, that, there's a lot of that respectability going on then. Um, and he said there's a kind of minister who, who the children wouldn't want to come near and the dogs bark at and growl from a distance. Um, and some think that's a mark of holiness, you know, and, 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 and piety. 
But Spurgeon says, no, 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 a real minister that makes a difference for the gospel. Children feel comfortable in their presence and, and dogs like to be around, he says. Someone with a full heart, with a warm heart, not a cold and distant heart. Yeah. There's something of, something of a welcoming of an interest in others, not because of what they give me, but because God made them, God loves them, God calls them each by name. Yeah. Children's ministry is not beneath you, brothers and sisters here. It's one of the best things you could do with your energy, service to the little ones and service to their adults indirectly as well. Having and raising children is not beneath you or a thing to get out of the way as quickly as possible, to squeeze into the cracks of life uh, as much as possible. Yeah, that bearing children, raising children, caring for children is a good and noble thing. I think in the noble desires to seek some of the stuff that feminism has sought, in its worst moments, it has tended to talk down the dignity of motherhood. Yeah, and, and so some can be told, oh, you know, now what really makes a woman great uh, is impact out in the world. At its worst moments, it can lose sight of the fact that there's another kind of greatness that makes men and women great in the home. And, and to be just a mother is not, is not a just at all, any more than to be just a father. It's a great work that humans can give. Yeah, to, to bear and to raise children. A real business in life, a real work of real economic value, of profound economic value. In fact, if you don't do it, we then have to pay all sorts of other people to do it for you. Yeah, it's a significant contribution to society, to the economy, to the arts, all, all of the creation. The home is not just a place of consumption. It's a place of production and creation, education. Yeah, profound thing. Yeah. Welcome the middle ones. More than that, Jesus says, be like them. Learn to be more like them, to be curious, to be humble, to be meek, to be eager, to, to realise you are like them, vulnerable, like the Syrio-Phoenician woman, a dog under the table. You're, you're, you're not something that attracts the praise of God, but as a sinner, you're one who begs for the mercy of God. You're merely a human, like the rest of us are. <laughs> yeah. Learn that again. Discover that again. There's great freedom in that. My greatness doesn't come from status, from power, from the achievement. It comes from God, who God has made me to be, who I'm in relationship with. Yeah? Again, such a profoundly wonderful vision of life, if you can get a hold of that. Man, we've got to say, before we move on from this one, that one of the great, terrible shames that the church is reckoning with is not just its failure to welcome children, but its predatory abuse of children and Terrible, along with the wider society, terrible mishandling of discovered abusers. Terrible shame, yeah? Uh, and it's something that the church is working desperately hard to rectify in so many places, including in, in like, say, the Anglican Diocese here in Tasmania. If anything, overcorrecting in its diligence to do what is right. And, and that's, that's, that's what repentance looks like, isn't it? Repentance says, I was part of this system that did the wrong thing, I'm going to change my action and I'm going to change the system to rectify the past as best as we can through compensation and to try and create a better future where this is less likely to happen and when it happens, it is dealt with properly. Welcome the little ones. Become like the little ones. Um, don't cause them to stumble. Verse uh, 9, verse 42 to, to 48. Let's have a little look at that. That's all, again, this is relating to the little ones. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If any of you causes you to sin, if, oh, sorry, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for your leg to life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Everything will be salted with fire. A serious talk of sin. Jesus is not actually commending self-maiming. It's a strong, vivid image 
of how much more important it is to deal with sin in your life. So much more important that it is as if plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand is better. That's, that's the force of the, the expression, right? Um, sin is serious. Deal with sin in your life, whether it's pornography, whether it's gossip, whether it's greed, whether it's rage, whether it's boastfulness, whatever that is, deal with the sins in your life. They're horrible things. They're the things that bring the judgment of God, that stoke the fires of hell, so to speak. Deal with sin. If you give in to sin and walk away from God, you come under the judgment of God. Deal with sin. For sin, Jesus died that you might be forgiven. Don't go back to that for which Jesus died. And on theme with our topic, verse 42, don't cause little ones to sin. Don't lead others to sin. Again, the horror of that abuse is, is the, is the victimising of it. Not causing them to sin, but the victimising and approaching of them. But you can also cause people to sin not by uh, abusing them as victims, but by tempting, leading astray, wooing, corrupting with false teaching, false example, false toleration of, uh, of things that God condemns. To use a, a, a very hot and, and um, emotionally loaded example, um, there's two ways in which the church, it seems to me, causes little ones to sin in the area of, of sexual morality. On the one hand, the church can be harsh and uh, lack any empathy or understanding, speaking of uh, those out there who are the sinners in sexual morality engaging in sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage and say, them out there do sex differently and it's bad and it's wrong out there, them. And that can cause little ones to stumble by a tone so harsh and so without understanding that it just causes little ones to be weighed down with guilt and self-disgust as if, if they've fallen in any area like that or they struggle with desires and temptations in areas like that, that they've, they're, they're the them, they're the yuck. And it can cause a great deal of, of stumbling and, and, and stunting in the Christian life. In all sorts of ways, it can be confusing and difficult and cause turmoil. That's one area where the church can cause little ones to stumble when it comes to sexual morality. But you know what? Another way is to say that God permits and endorses things that he doesn't. So if God's good word says that the gift of sex is to go together in a heterosexual marriage with commitment, with openness to children, with uh, faithfulness for life, if that's what God says is good, then it's not good and right to be engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage, uh, lightly abandoning marriages for new marriages and new affairs, to be engaging in sex with people of the same sex. That's not God's good way. And so even in love, to endorse things that God doesn't endorse is actually causing God's little ones to stumble by telling them it's okay what God says isn't okay. Jesus also speaks of the great ones who get it wrong. So it's really on, on topic still as we get into the theme of divorce. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, Jesus talks about a, a form of pharisaical teaching which justifies divorce too quickly and easy. Yeah? This is 10 verse 2. The Pharisees come. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They see it as too quick and easy. As long as you got the certificate of divorce, that's all that Moses said. So if a man's not pleased with his wife anymore, uh, some rabbis even said if it's just the food's not good at home that she cooks, well, then that's unpleasing. He's found something unpleasing in the wife. Write the certificate of divorce. That's what it says in the law. Send her away. That's where they're going, yeah? Uh, which is causing little ones to stumble. A too easy attitude to divorce rather than a... a Jesus goes on to correct, yeah? Jesus says, hey, Moses said this because your hearts were hard. This isn't the ideal that marriage is a plug and play on and off, you know, when it doesn't work out, just can it and try again. That's not what he had in mind. This, this is the hard-heartedness 
Moses. This wasn't the intention. At the beginning, verse 6, God made them male and female, and these two sexes, for this reason, will leave father and mother, be united together, man and wife. They'll become one flesh. They're no longer two, they're one. What God has joined together, let man not separate. When they're at home, they ask Jesus about this. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. That, that's the norm. That's the good. That's what you want to be teaching, O Pharisees, O disciples. Um, does divorce, in the case of hard-heartedness, the Bible talks elsewhere about uh, if a partner cheats on another or abandons another, there are hard-hearted exceptions where a, div- where a divorce is tragically justifiable. Yeah. Um, but it's not just, oh, like it's just you just write a certificate, that's the deal, right? You just say, oh, I'm over this. You over this? We're out of love. We're out of love. Well, it's all over. Now, Jesus, that's... Failing to seek to preserve uh, marriage is an example here of, uh, of uh, failing to do that is to cause the little ones to stumble. These great ones, these Pharisees, with their uh, twisting of Scripture and not understanding the full emphasis of Scripture, are too lightly permitting something which in the end is, is, uh, is wrong to too lightly permit. They're letting go of something precious and important. Similarly, the rich young ruler in verses 17 to 30, the rich young ruler, um, we're almost done, is um, uh, in many ways seems to be getting it right. Beyond, uh, uh, above and beyond it seems to be, right? Uh, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy, verse 20. But Jesus gets behind this seeming moral you know, perfection First of all, why are you calling me good? Are you like kind of trying to sort of, um, you know, sort of be a bit smarmy here? You know, sort of trying to sort of win me over with your, with your uh, flattering words? Oh, good teacher. Well, I don't care for good. Don't, don't good teacher me. There's no one good. God's good. Get on with your question. <laughs> what must I do to inherit life? Well, you know the commandments. Are you keeping the commandments? Oh, all of them. Yep, done. And then Jesus pushes it a little further, doesn't he? There's obeying all the rules but then there's a whole life offered in service to God. What about that? Jesus looked at him and in love, he says this hard word in love, that's cool, isn't it? Jesus looked at him and he loved him and then says this hard word. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then you have treasure in heaven and then come, follow me. Got him, Jesus got him, verse 22. This, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said, verse 22. 23. Jesus looked at this rich one who's all good teacher this, good teacher that, I've kept all the rules, look how great I am. And he says, look, if you're really serious, why don't you become one of my disciples? He doesn't invite everyone through the book to follow him everywhere he goes, does he? But this guy, he, he's put a finger on something, hasn't he? He knows this guy loves wealth. He says, if you're really serious about following God, if you, as you say, really serious about eternal life, as you say, you want a job? <laughs> We've got an opening. Just sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and give the rest of your life for the kingdom of God. Since you're so keen on inheriting eternal life, come and join us in the mission. And he goes, yeah, I'm not that keen, actually, thanks. Okay, bye. <laughs> Walks away. And it's one of those examples we see throughout the Gospels where Jesus answers a question with a question or changes the topic slightly to get it behind the question. And we'll see a lot more of that tomorrow night. He's here getting behind this guy's question. to go, no, you love money. You love status. And you wanted a little, uh, little quote from me. Oh, yeah, I was talking to Jesus the other day, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was talking to him and I said, oh, what else do I need to turn a life? Called him good, actually. He liked that. Yeah, and... Um, uh, um, and anyway, he said I was fine. He said it was all good. You know, he said, I said I told him I kept all the commandments, and he was pretty. I thought he was pretty impressed, actually. Yeah. yeah anyway, this is good. I call him JC, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking to take it up carpentry myself, actually. Um, I think he was looking for that. He was. He thought he was okay already. He wasn't really interested in Jesus. Really interested in God. Really interested in eternal life. He wasn't dying to self, in other words, to worldly self, to this life self. He's one of the great ones getting it wrong. 
Like in the parable of the sower, there's the seed that sprouts up, but then is choked by thorns and weeds because of the desire for wealth and the worries of this life. Compare that to the little ones who get it right. The disciples at this point are on the right track. They, uh, they, uh, they say, who can be saved? Wow. And Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. With God this is possible. He can change our hearts and turn us from our worldly desires. Um, and then Peter said, well, hang on, actually, hang on, he has done that. We left our nets, our businesses to follow you. Jesus says, yeah, I tell you the truth. No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me or for the gospel. We're thinking some of these brothers and sisters we prayed for in other places. They've left things behind for Jesus and for the gospel. Here there might be a bunch of stories of little things and big things we've left behind in various ways for Jesus and his gospel. When you do turn that way, die to self and worldly self and this life self and give your life to serve God, however that looks for you, you won't fail to receive a hundred times as much as anything you gave up, Holmes. Even in his present life, he says. Because in the church, you find yourself rich in a different way with new brothers and sisters, new wealth across the globe in the church. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, but with them persecution. And in the age to come, verse 30, eternal life. But remember, whoever is first will be last. Whoever is last will be first. There's a cross-shaped life for you, isn't there? It's being humble yourself, welcoming others, not causing them to stumble, yeah? holding fast to God's word, living for his purposes, dying to self, listening to Jesus. Let me conclude again just by summarising today's sermons in a paragraph, in, a, in a, three lines it is. Jesus is powerful and compassionate to save. He came to die for our salvation. So follow him carrying your cross in godliness, in humility, in suffering, in generosity, with mission-mindedness. Make that mark your life, your friendships, your churches and ministries. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins you came to die, even the sins committed by your people. For the sins of the church you came to die. We thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace, your love to us, even that stern love that challenges and rebukes us. And since with prayer mountains can be moved, since with God all things are possible, we pray that you make us able to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you. What better thing could we do with our lives than to follow the servant king in whose name we pray. Amen.